Thank you. Good morning. I always feel safe in church, but I felt really extra safe this morning because I spotted two superheroes. We had Zach came in with his mask and then we had Batman on drums. So all was good. I felt safe this morning. Um, and I'm really excited about the prayer train. Um, I lose my keys really regularly. Um, so to know that there's a prayer train there is fantastic. I do lose my phone as well, but of course, if I lost my phone, I can't use the chair, the prayer chain. So, but I'm going to use that facility where I can. Um, we had this commissioning service this morning, and, um, and I thought about, well, some of you will know that I was um, youth pastor at Church on the Way for 23 years, which was a long time. I was very passionate about working with young people, never believed that it was the gateway to grown-ups. Never believed it was where you cut your teeth, and then when you've made all your mistakes with young people, on to adults. Um, I didn't also believe that the young people were the church of the future either. I always believed that they were the church of now, that they had their own generation to touch, and that God wasn't waiting for them to be 21 before he could use them. But I've got all kinds of thoughts about young people, but given the fact that all the young youth workers are not here, there's no point sharing them. But I will share some thoughts this morning about ministry, um, and particularly about how Paul viewed his own ministry. And hopefully you'll find some um, encouragement and some challenge in, in that for yourself. So if you have a Bible, if not, you can see the verse on the screen. Please turn to Philippians chapter 1. And we're just going to look at two verses, verse 20 and 21. And I'm hoping that, you know, not that I knew the, the verse that Pastor Phil was going to give Lucas, but I'm hoping that there's some resonance between what was shared with him and what I'm going to, to share this morning. So in Philippians chapter 1, um, and just look out for these words or phrases. Look out for the word ashamed, look out for the word courage, and look out for that phrase, for me to die is Christ, and to live, uh, sorry, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. So let's just read the scripture together. Um, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is game. And so I want to just look at, first of all, what it means um, not to be ashamed, what it means to be courageous, and then just look a bit of, around that phrase, um, for me to live is Christ and to die is game. Because I think that these verses give us an insight into Paul's mindset about himself and his ministry um, and how he conducted his life. So the first thing that's quite interesting is that he talks about not being ashamed and if you read the writings of Paul, um, you get this sense that he had a real awareness of the judgment of God. That he understood that at some point in his life, in his death, he was going to stand before God and give an account of his life. And stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And that's true of us all. All of us will die at some point. 
and all of us will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 9 and 10, he says, so we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. And I think if you look at Paul's teaching, you see that he, he was, it, it was in the forefront of his mind that at some point, as a result of his life, in his death, he would stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And I think that to some extent, as Christians, we seem to have lost a bit of that sense of, of understanding that we have to give an account at some point in our lives. And I don't know why we've lost it. Whether we've lost it because we just think God's loving and soft. And what's it matter anyway? I mean, what's it matter if you've given your life to Christ, but then live a poor and unproductive life? What's God going to do? I mean, I, I thought about this this morning. When I first went to Spain years and years ago, I was scared stiff when I got off the aeroplane. Because you'd go into the airport and you'd see these like guards with machine guns. I'd never seen that in my life with jackboots and really grumpy faces. And they would really examine you carefully to make sure that you weren't going to be bad. And then you'd get to the passport control. <clears throat> and the passport control guy was just the same. Grumpy and you had this interrogation. And you're just thinking... I'm just coming for a week's holiday, you know, but you were interrogated. <clears throat> and then I went recently, and I couldn't believe it. I didn't even get eye contact with the guy. He just had a hand gesture. <laughs> and off we went through. No examination, no people with machine guns, and in we came. And, of course, that's going to go back to the first, isn't it, when we leave Europe. But anyway... Um, but he was just coming in. And whether we think that when we get to heaven, there's just going to be God. Come on in. I can see by the Holy Spirit in you, you're mine. In you come. Or are we going to really genuinely stand before the judgment seat of God? Are we going to give an account for how we've lived our life? And if that was and is the case, and I think if you read your Bibles, you know it to be true then you might want to pray that God would bring that a bit more to the forefront of your life so that it's more in our minds that we will have to give an account. Now, the way that Paul expresses it is this, is I just don't want to be ashamed. When I stand before God, I just don't want to be ashamed. And that's a kind of negative way of saying I want to be able to stand confidently before God. Now, if Christ is your saviour, you will be confident of heaven. But what's the judgment going to be? What's God going to say about you? My favourite book in the Bible is the Song of Solomon. And in the Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 6, the bride says these things. She says, do not stare at me because I am dark, because I am darkened by the sun. My mother's sons were angry with me and made me take care of the vineyards, my own vineyard, I had to neglect. Now, 
The Song of Solomon is essentially a conversation between a bride and a bridegroom, the bride being a picture of the church and the groom being a picture of Jesus. And so when you read the Song of Solomon and you find the bride talking, she's essentially expressing the views of the church. And she's saying, don't look at me because I'm dark. She's ashamed of how she looks. And she says, because I've been working out in the fields, in the vineyards, and I'm just darkened by the sun. But if you know the story of Song of Solomon, um, the idea is that while she was working in the vineyards, King Solomon, who owns the vineyard, comes in and sees her. And he doesn't see a dark, unattractive woman. He just sees somebody who's beautiful. And he falls in love with her. And the Song of Solomon is really a story about how he knows that he can't win her um, as king because she's so kind of intimidated by his appearance. And so he becomes a shepherd and wins her by being a shepherd. And then eventually they get married. But when he looks at her, he doesn't see somebody that's dark and unbeautiful. He sees somebody incredibly beautiful. And when you... Give your life to Jesus. When you take on the salvation that is available through Christ, that's exactly how Christ sees you. you know, and you don't need to be ashamed because as far as God is concerned, you are beautiful. So we don't need to be ashamed when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. But Paul is saying, can you be confident that when you stand and give an account of your life, it is one that has glorified God. Um, so we need that kind of heavenly perspective. I mean, it's worth, as an aside, just thinking differently for a second, on that particular verse um, where it says, um, he has made me, or they have made me the keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. That would be, I've never been invited to speak to pastors or missionaries, um, and I don't think I ever will. But it's a shame, really, because I've got my text. Um, I just never had the invitation. Uh, but that would be my text. Um, and that would be my piece of advice. In fact, when I was young, I wanted to be a full-time pastor. And I was youth pastor, but never full-time. And I remember talking to a senior pastor about, you know, being a pastor. I was only kind of 20 or 21 at the time. And I said to him, Will you please give me your one piece of advice about ministry and being a minister? Um, and actually, some of you will have known him because he was called Pastor Douglas Evans. Um, and he thought for, I thought it was quite a long time, really. And then he said, keep yourself fit. And that was it. And I thought... Really, Douglas, you know, we've come out for a coffee. I'm trying to troll from you the essence of ministry. And you've said, keep yourself fit. But he did go on to explain that if you don't look after yourself and you get ill, the enemy can take hold of you really, really quickly and make you ineffective. And those of you that knew Douglas would know that he would often regularly choose to walk large distances to places you know, rather than drive or whatever. But that was his advice. My advice would be, don't neglect your own vineyard. If you're in ministry 
and you are looking after the vineyards of others, you are looking at the lives of other people, you are caring for other people, and you are ministering, and you are constantly looking after the vineyards of other people, don't forget to look after your own vineyard. Don't forget to look after your own life. And in particular, um, don't forget to read your Bible and to pray. And don't assume that because you are regularly speaking, because you are regularly feeding other people, that the food that you feed other people is food that will feed yourself. Because it doesn't always. So don't forget to read your Bibles and don't forget to, to feed yourself. So first of all, Paul is driven by this sense of, I'm not going to be ashamed. When I stand before the judgment seat of Christ, I'm not going to be ashamed. But then in Philippians, he, he talks about courage. You know, there's that sense of, um, but we'll have, I will in no way be ashamed, but we'll have sufficient courage. Now this word courage really has two kind of connotations. The first one is not one that's obvious unless you look at the Greek. And the Greek really isn't just about how we would understand courage. It's more to do with having a legacy. It's more to do with um, leaving a witness behind of what we've done. It even has the sense of publicity. So when he's talking, first of all, about having sufficient courage, he's saying, what is your legacy? When you stand before God and you look back over your life, what is going to be said of it and of you? Um, and it's interesting because Paul puts these things next to each other. That on the one hand, thinking about doing everything for God and his judgment is not incompatible with thinking about the legacy that I leave behind. In fact, they're, they're, they're opposite sides of the same coin. Is understanding that I will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, but thinking about the legacy that I leave behind goes hand in hand. And so being courageous has first of all that sense of, what do you think? people will say about you. And for Lucas, you know, however long he's here in ministry, what will his legacy be? You know, what has he left behind and what will he leave behind? And you might want to think that for yourself, even now, you know, what is your legacy? But also, the, the sense of courage has to do with being decisive or taking action. That when you are a Christian, whatever your ministry is, it requires you to be courageous and it requires you to be decisive. It requires you to be taking action. We read in Daniel chapter 11, verse 32, in the NIV it says, but the people who know their God will firmly resist him. But in other versions it says, it says in the King James, but the people that know their God shall be strong and do exploits, or the people who know their God shall be strong and take action. And I think that one of the things that characterized Paul's ministry was that he was decisive. He was a man who could make decisions. He was a man who could take action. Now, I think it's quite interesting because over the years, I've sort of observed 
leadership both within my professional life as a head teacher but also within church leadership in eldership not here but elsewhere um, and it seems to me that one of the things I think sometimes is that it's difficult for people to admit that they have weaknesses or shortcomings and often what we do with weaknesses and shortcomings is we think to ourselves how can we turn that weakness or shortcoming to sound something like a strength. You know, rather than just kind of be up front and say, actually, I'm not very good at that, we try to make it a virtue. So if we meet somebody who's incredibly indecisive, who can't make a decision, we don't just say, well, that's an indecisive, can't make a decision person. We say, that's a thoughtful person. That's a reflective person. That's a meditative person. And we've turned this shortcoming into something virtuous. But I think, why are we doing that? Let's just call it what it is. Because I do think that when we're involved in ministry, we do have to be decisive. I mean, I have sat through so many school meetings I've sat through so many elders' meetings in my previous church, and I'd walk away and think, have we made a single decision? No. Not a single decision. And when you get the, the minutes from the meeting, there's always a little note in the margin that says, to be reconsidered. And you think, oh my word. Come on. Let's make a decision. Now, my mantra as a head teacher, and it's not one that everybody would particularly like, is it's better to make a wrong decision than no decision. And then I'd live with the consequences of that. But I do think that sometimes in church we can be slow and ponderous under the guise of being thoughtful and not getting it wrong. But often our not getting it, or our getting it wrong or not getting it right is not driven by anything spiritual. It's just a fear. And we read in that verse from Timothy, we are not given a spirit of fear and timidity. We need to be decisive. Life too short to be delib deliberating for too long. And then you hear the voice, ooh, act in haste, repent at leisure. No, act in haste, repent not at all. Let's just crack on. Let's make some decisions. Let's do something. And then move on. And I think that church leadership and ministry and any leadership just needs to have that decisiveness about it. Um, and you have got that blanket. If you're going to do something really dumb or really stupid, God's going to step in, isn't he? Well, that's not a reason to do stupid and dumb things. Well, it is really. All you can do is jump and jump into the arms of Jesus. But it's better to jump than to stay on the edge of the cliff and wonder if you could. And then tied up with this, because I'm leading towards this kind of concept of, of living at risk. Um, because that's really underpins this phrase. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain, is this concept of of, of living at risk. You know, I, I do admire people like Lucas, who, when you think about it, has come from 
Brazil to Bradford, I mean, the only kind of common thing is the first three letters of his country in our city, you know. That's all, and he's come all that way, and he's working here. And I've seen it in a different light. I've seen a young man called Sam Stockhill leave Sunbridge Road Mission and go to New Zealand and go to Nepal. So I get some of it. But I think that sometimes we kind of over-spiritualize that. We sort of think, oh, these are the spiritual giants. These are the spiritual greats. These are the people who are really living it. You know, they're the, they're the premiership Christians. And the rest of us are kind of, at best, first or second or conference. We're not quite there yet. But I don't believe that. But I do think the difference between Lucas and Sam Stockhill and the rest of us is I do think they've understood a principle that we haven't quite got. It's a principle that actually we don't really fully understand. But they've, they've got a little insight that perhaps we haven't got. But don't worry. I'm going to tell you what it is. So we can all leave Bradford and go to different places for the rest of our lives. I mean, I, I just thought this now, so I'm going to say it. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we had to close down Sunbridge Road Mission, even though we're building a new building over there, because there was no congregation, because everybody had gone. Pastor Phil's not giving me the thumbs up there, so I'll, I'll move on really, really quickly with that. But they've got, they understand something that we don't. And it's almost a bit like, you know, the story of the emperor's new clothes where he goes off and, he, and he, he pays a tailor. He gives him loads of gold thread and says, make me a, a cloak or clothes out of it. And he spends it and then cons him into thinking that being naked is his new outfit. And he walks down the street in his boxes and it takes a little kid to say, the emperor's got no clothes. Well... I'm trying to say that that's Lucas and Sam to some extent. Uh, and I know the analogy doesn't work well. The other analogy I had, I love Shakespeare. You know, in Shakespeare's plays, it's always the clowns or the fools that really know what's going on. Nobody else does in a Shakespeare play. Everybody else is totally and utterly confused, usually the audience as well. But the clown or the fool, they get it. So what is it that they know that, that we don't know? Well, they've learned that life is not safe. Life is not safe. So why try and live a life that is safe when it's not? You know, we, we've heard Bob pray for a number of people whose lives have been changed in a circumstance. My brother's life, I've got a twin brother. He's now in a, a nursing home. He had a stroke about 10 weeks ago. He's paralyzed on one side, can't get out of bed, can't talk. And when I go and see him, just raises his fist and says, why does God do this? That he can say that. He also uses swear words, which I'm amazed he can remember those as well. But um, he can't say anything else. But he's angry. And his life has changed. And it's come at such a rubbish time for him because he's had an awful life. And then he got into a really lovely house and his whole circumstances changed. And then within two months of this lovely new lifestyle that he got, he had a stroke and has this awful... You know, we know that stuff. Every week we're broken by the knowledge that somebody that we love is in a difficult place. And it never occurs to ourselves that that might be us. 
because we seem to be so consumed with a comfortable life. But I think that people involved in ministry have learned that there's no such thing as safety. In fact, um, John Piper calls it the mirage of safety. The mirage of safety. And the mirage is that thing where you think you're just going to grab it and then it disappears. There is no such thing as living a safe life. So why are we trying to do that? And I think that people that take those great moves have really embraced the concept for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. They've worked out that the life that is best lived is the life that is lived at risk. Knowing what's the worst that can happen? We end up in heaven. They've worked it out. Now, it's interesting because as I was thinking about this, and I picked up a little book a couple of weeks ago from the back, so whoever left it, thank you, because it got me thinking. It did get me thinking about, you know, this idea of taking risks is interesting because, of course, God can't take risks. And it's one thing that we can do that God can't do. Because, of course, when you take a risk, you don't know what the outcome is. But God knows the outcome of everything. So God isn't and never can be a risk taker. But if I decided, for example, imagine a crossroads with some traffic lights and that there's a road that leads down to the traffic lights, a really steep road and there's houses on either side. So I can't see where the cars are actually going to be coming across. And as I'm driving down, I can see the red light. And I think to myself, wouldn't it be fun if I just put my foot down now and took my chances. Now, obviously, Ian Thompson, I wouldn't recommend this as a driving instructor, right? Um, thank you. Um, but it's just an analogy. So I'm at the top of the hill. I can see the red light, and I decide that I'm just going to put my foot down, go through the red light, and take my chances. I've got two options, really, that I was, if you want to believe in luck, lucky that there were no cars coming through, or I'm unlucky and the cars weren't. But when I do it, I have no idea what the outcome is. Now, of course, God does. And he's not actually advocating either of those options, is he, in truth? Let's be politically correct. But we don't know what the risks are. But we don't know in life. You know, I don't know if next Sunday the announcement is that unfortunately Jez isn't here with us anymore. That's a possibility. Don't cheer, you know. It's a possibility. I actually don't know if I'm going to make it home. None of us do. Our lives are risks. And therefore, given that, how would you live? I've noticed often um, with people, for example, that have got cancer and they've got a terminal diagnosis, just how it changes their life. It changes their perspective and it changes their behaviour. I was deeply moved this week. I don't know if any of you heard the, the blog that I think it was Katie Bland had done, uh, a reporter on the, on the news 
Um, she'd been told that she'd got cancer, and then um, more recently, she'd, it had gone and then it came back, and she had literally days and died. And it was a very moving account, you know, a 40-year-old woman who'd got a three-year-old son. Uh, and I found it deeply distressing as I'm listening to it on the radio. Um, and I thought it was quite sad as well, because she would talk about the big C, cancer, the big C. And, and some of you will remember years ago, a woman called Joy McKenzie, uh, and she had cancer, beautiful singing voice, pianist. Um, and she talked about cancer with a small C, because the big C is Christ. You know, that she'd only got small C, but she'd also got big C, which was Christ. And her favorite song was, For This I Have Jesus. But, her, you know, perspectives change when you realize the vulnerability of our lives and that things can change. And given that, there is no such thing as a safe life. There is no such thing as a comfortable life. And there is something about risk. And my final thoughts really around this because over the years, I think that most serious Christians that I know at some point have a, had a call to missions or to ministry. I've had this conversation with quite a lot of people because I'm, I'm kind of a bit intrigued about this one myself. But generally speaking, every serious Christian that I know at some point has had some kind of call to ministry or to missions. Now, it seems to be less common, but when I was young, we'd often go to uh, big missionary meetings where the big leaders of missionary societies would, would talk about the mission. And then they would give the call. They would tell us that they, you know, the fields were plentiful, but the laborers were few. And they would encourage us to, to come and to be involved in ministry. And every serious Christian that I've ever met said at some point they have been in a meeting where God touched their hearts and said, I would like you to do that. And all those serious Christians never did. They had the call. They had the invitation from Christ. And so few took it up. And I think that lots of Christians, that eats away at them. It eats away at them because they think, why didn't I? Why didn't I? Because life could be so different now. Well, they didn't really because at that time it was too risky. There was too much to lose. And so they didn't. And so they've resigned themselves to a safe life. But what I'd like to say to you this morning is that if that was a genuine call on your life, God would make it again to you. And he might make it to you this morning. And he might remind you of something that he once called you to do that has been simmering away and eating away for years. And God is saying, the call still holds. Why don't you do it now? And I think that's really, I hope that that is a message of liberation for some of you. That something has been eating away at you and for years, you've just had that sense of regret. 
And if only I had called. I remember years ago, a, a man called Tony Campolo, who was a pastor in America, quite outrageous speaker. But he was also a professor at a university, Christian university. And he would say that students would come in to him and say, Professor Campolo, I feel called to the mission field. And so he would pick up the phone and he'd say, where do you want to go? Well, South America. So he'd pick up the phone and he'd say to his secretary, book me two tickets to South America. One return, one single. And put it down. And he would say, the mothers and fathers would be outraged. But he would say, if they don't act now, they never will. And I just think that I don't quite hold to that because I believe in a God of second and third and fourth chances. I believe in a God who, when he says something, he loves you and knows that maybe at that time it wasn't a possibility. But it is now. And of course you might think, well, that's outrageous. I'm quite elderly now. Well, God does, if you read your Bible, quite outrageous things with elderly people. They even give birth when they're very old. Um, not that I'm advocating that either. But God does. He calls us. And so I just want to really encourage you, because I know that this can be quite challenging, but I don't want it to be a challenging thing. I just want it to be a liberating thing. Phew, what you mean? That what God said to me 30 years ago can happen now? It can. You just need to take the risk. You know, in Joel chapter 2, verse 25, it says, I will repay or I will restore you for the years the locusts have eaten. You know, you might find that the locusts have been eating that call and God says, do you know what? I'll restore it and I'll repay it. And we might not be sure of what the outcome is. When you read lots of Bible characters, you often don't. Sometimes you do. I'm always intrigued, for example, in Jeremiah 7, where God says, go and stand at the gates, preach this message, but nobody's going to listen. I've had that experience. But, just, but he knew what the outcome was. But then equally, when Esther stood before the king to plead on behalf of the Jews, she didn't know what the outcome was going to be. In fact, she said, please pray and fast me, and if I perish, I perish she had no certainty. She wasn't walking in with the absolute assurance that God was going to deliver her and that when she spoke to the king, she was going to be heard. But that wasn't her motivating factor. She just wanted to do the right thing and say, if I perish, I perish. We may not know the outcome, but we don't need to do because that's the nature of taking a risk. But what you can be certain of is this, and I'll just leave you with this verse, and then if they, the band want to come up, if we're going to sing a, a song, are we? James, thank you. Um, let me just read that wonderful scripture in Romans chapter 8, verse 35 to 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, 
In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the promise. Not that you'll know the outcome. And you might get into heaven quicker if you live a life of risk. But what you are certain of is that nothing in this world will ever separate you from the love of Christ. Amen.